Thank you. Invite you, if you have your Bible, to go ahead and open up to the book of Ruth. Uh, we do have a lot of new people here today. Uh, it looks like we also have a lot of college students who have returned. Um, I'm, my name is uh, Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And we, this morning, are finishing up the book of Ruth. It's also a special Sunday for us because the end of each month we have a family Sunday where we have all of the kids in here with us. So kids, hopefully you have your bulletin uh, so that you can be following along with us this morning. Throughout our series, we've used a few different metaphors for the book of Ruth, whether it's talking about harvests, whether in bitter hardships, but, but we've, one of the, the metaphors we've used that has made the most sense to me, that has struck an accord with me, is the idea of a beautiful piece of art. A masterpiece that only a true master could produce. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched someone or seen the progress of a painting. Maybe you've, uh, you've been to uh, taken art classes and you were watching someone. Uh, maybe you've seen a demonstration of someone painting in a city. Or maybe you, if you're younger, you've watched a lot of Bob Ross tutorials on YouTube. But there's this phenomenon with, with different paintings that I've observed, and, and it's likely you've seen it too. And this is the phenomenon, that for most of the time, most of the time that the painter is working, there is nothing beautiful or attractive about what he's producing. You look at the painting and you're like, what on earth are all of these happy little shapes I'm not seeing anything that comes together. In fact, I look at this and I would say it's chaotic. It's, it's actually, instead of being attractive, it's unattractive. It pushes me away. What's happening here that this artist says, no, no, trust me, this is going to work out. And there comes this moment when you're watching at the very end when the artist uses, takes his paintbrush and does those final strokes where all of a sudden the image leaps out to you in all of its beauty. It is surprising. It is overwhelming. But it doesn't happen until those final brush strokes are made. That's what we're going to find in this final chapter of Ruth. All of the bitter hardships we've observed, all of the difficult decisions that were made, all of the righteous and faithful responses we've celebrated, all of them are culminating in this final chapter. This is the grand finale of the play that leaves you overwhelmed in your seat. It's the crescendo of the orchestra that finishes and the final notes are hanging in the air and you are awestruck. Kids, this is the last five minutes of the fireworks show that just makes you jump for joy and start celebrating because it's just so magnificent. Here's the question. What is the right response 
when a masterpiece is revealed. How are we supposed to respond when the artist turns the canvas and says, look what I was doing the whole time. The best art is meant to produce a change. It's meant to provoke a response from those who interact with it. How are we meant to respond to the book of Ruth? When this masterpiece is finally revealed in all its beauty, what is the right response? So far, we've seen a lot of different responses within the book of Ruth. The first response we saw was that the need to return from Moab. When we realize we are not where we are meant to be, we must return. We've seen the importance of faithfully striving to follow God's will. If we long for his refuge, we need to follow his will. We've seen that we must receive the redeemer the Lord has provided. The Lord has provided a worthy redeemer, but we must receive that redeemer with submission, humility, and patience. But all of that was predicated on the fact that something better was coming. That there was a happy ending we were waiting for. And so we reached this happy ending. And what's our response now? I want us to consider two different responses this morning. The first response I want us to look at is the idea of rest. The idea that we rest in a good and gracious Redeemer. That we rest in the Lord who is over this entire story. Now, when I'm talking about rest, I'm not talking about it in the passive sense. Do you know what passive rest is? Laziness. Laziness is the refusal to do the work we are called to do. It's passive. That's not what I'm talking about. Rest is the active response, doing what we are supposed to do, but trusting God to do what only he can do. First response that we want to see from this final chapter is that element of rest, of trusting God, actively responding, actively doing what we are meant to do, but ultimately resting in him, ultimately trusting him to do the work that only he can do. That's the first response. The second response, though, is to rejoice. Rejoice when we see the beauty of what God has done. When you, if you were to go to whatever type of art you prefer, whether it's, it might be a play, might be a song, might be seeing a painting, and you go there and you get the privilege of seeing something masterful and you go, Okay, that's not the response that's supposed to invoke from you. There's a sense of awe. Wow. And the best parts, best masterpieces, the more you observe them, the closer you get to it, the more in awe you are. Here's our big idea for this morning. When we recognize the Redeemer's work, we faithfully respond and rejoice in him. We actually have two here. Um, That was the one that I was going to use, but then ended up changing it. This is the other one. 
Rejoice in the Redeemer, for he restores those who rest in him. Hopefully that's on your handout. Is that on your handout? Rejoice in the Redeemer, for he restores those who rest in him. It's not? Okay, take your pencils out. Get it out. Here we go. Rejoice in the Redeemer, for he restores those who rest in him. Rejoice in the Redeemer, for he restores those who rest in him. Those are both of our responses. We rejoice because we know that he is doing the, on, the work that only he can do. Only he can restore. But who does he restore? Those who rest in him. Let's turn to Ruth and observe those responses in the characters of our stories. Before we jump into our passage, beginning in chapter four, though, I just want us to remember a little bit of where we left off last week. Last week ended with a cliffhanger. For a bit, in the middle of chapter three, everything was looking really good. It was finally working out. Ruth went to Boaz, something that was terrifying. She goes in the middle of the night. She lies at his feet and she asks, will you redeem me? And the first response of Boaz is magnificent. And we finally think, this is it. But then he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you, lie down until the morning. In a sense, there's a little bit of resolution here because we're told, hey, no matter what, Ruth, you will be redeemed. Whether it's him or me, it's going to happen. But that's not the ending we want. After we've learned about Boaz, after we've seen in chapter two that he is a worthy man, that's not the redeemer that we want. And so we're left in this cliffhanger and not just us. Who's left with a cliffhanger at the end? Ruth and Naomi. Ruth goes home. Naomi asks her, tell me my daughter, what happened? You can imagine Naomi, who loves her daughter, has been sitting by the door all night waiting for Ruth to come back to find out what the result was. And, they, and Ruth tells her everything. And this is Naomi's words. Wait. Be patient. Boaz will not rest until this issue is resolved. But there's this tension here. What's going to happen? Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Boaz does not delay. What Naomi said about him is true. He will not rest until the issue is resolved. The language here is an, a language of urgency, of speed. Boaz immediately goes to the gate. Now, why, why is he going to the gate? Okay, kids, if you want to meet up with friends, if you want to have a play date, what do you ask your parents to do? Hey, 
Can you send a text message? Can you Marco Polo? Can you call so-and-so and see if we can play together? That was, that's what you do, and it's very easy. And then you can just drive there and figure all of this stuff out. They couldn't do that back then. They didn't have any cell phones. They didn't have email. They didn't have regular mail. They just had no way of doing that. So if you wanted to meet with someone, you had to go where you thought they would be. The gate was a good place to do that. Because everyone who's going to be leaving the city, whether to go out to harvest or, or do anything else to work out in the fields, they would have to go through that gate. So Boaz leaves where he was, the threshing floor. He runs to the gate so that he won't miss the other redeemer he's been talking about. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. As luck would have it, it just happens that precisely the man Boaz is looking for happens to come by. Again, there's the, within the language, there's an idea of speed. That man, Boaz arrived and right after, here comes this other redeemer. Now here's the question. Do we really think it's as luck would have it? No. There's as much luck in this as there was in chapter 2 where Ruth happened to come to the fields that belonged to Boaz. What are we seeing here? What's the underlying truth that we've seen throughout the entire book? God is in control. God is doing something bigger than any of the characters are aware of. Boaz gets there and here comes this other redeemer. He says, hey, sit over here. And, and then he calls some other men to sit down. And here's why. The gate wasn't just a good place to meet. It was also where you did business decisions. It was also the place of judgment. It was also the place for everyone to know what was happening. And so Boaz says, wait, you sit here. All of you guys, I want you to sit here. I want you to be witnesses to what's about to happen. We are going to do this the right way way. So what does Boaz do? I just want us to pause and, and kind of think. We, we often go through the story of Ruth and, and we really uh, develop, okay, what's, what's going on in, in Ruth's mind right now? What, what's happening for Naomi in this place of darkness? I want us to just think about what's happening for Boaz. Think about what the last few months have been like for him. After years of waiting for the famine to be over, God has finally visited his people and given them food. Boaz's fields are finally producing a bountiful harvest. While that's happening, he learns that the wife of his relative Elimelech has returned. The one who over 10 years ago left with her two sons and her husband because of the famine, they've come back, but not all of them. He hears the tragic news that his relative Elimelech has died. Not just Elimelech, Malon and Killian have also died, but then there's a surprise. Ruth has come back with a Moabite. Or not Ruth, Naomi. That's going to happen a lot. I've already been told that I've switched the names a lot before last week. Naomi has come back with the Moabite. And then what does he hear about her? The whole town is stirred up about this. All of them are talking about it. Then, and, and Naomi has said that she is bitter because the Lord has dealt harshly with her. But they hear about this girl who's left 
everything in order to serve her mother-in-law. Then the next day, shortly after Boaz has heard about this, he goes out to his fields. Lo and behold, Ruth is there. Now he not only has heard of her character, he sees her character. From early in the morning, she has been there working hard. He sees the integrity that she works with. And he blesses her. He says, the Lord bless you. Give you a reward because you have come and sought refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. For the next several weeks, Ruth's there every week, every day. Every day she's there working hard and Boaz is observing this continue. Finally, it comes time for the har- to, do, to celebrate the harvest. He's at the threshing floor. They are celebrating a place that hasn't been used in in a long time because there hasn't been food. And here they are. They're celebrating it. They're eating. They're drinking. He goes to sleep with a merry heart. And then he's startled awake because there's a woman lying at his feet. And the greatest surprise to him, she says, will you redeem me? And Boaz is is taken back by that because he says, me? I'm old. There's other younger men. You would look to me to redeem you? He sees this. He's overjoyed by the opportunity. He's full of joy with this because he recognizes in Ruth as a worthy woman. And not just him. He says, all of my townspeople know that you are a worthy woman. This is what we've been wanting. And then, but there's a closer redeemer. There's someone whose right precedes mine. There is another person who gets to to enact and do what God has described in Deuteronomy 25 before me. Do you think that this is difficult for Boaz to reach this place and say, God, I want this. I I want to be your solution for Ruth. This fills me with joy. And yet what we see here is that Boaz is doing the honorable thing. He is saying, I am willing to give up what I want in order to do what is right. Verse three, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz is willing to do the right thing. And what does the other redeemer say? And he said, I will redeem it. No, that's not what we want. We want them to say, no, Boaz, you take it. You, you've been the one that's been caring for them. They're, they've been coming to your fields. You, you be the one. No, but Bo- Boaz is the one that we want to be the hero here. 
But recognize that Boaz is doing what is right, even if it means losing what he wants. We're going to get more into this later. But but you know why I think Boaz does what is right here, even if it means losing what he wants? Because Boaz is resting in God. More than resting in his own strength, more than resting in his own way of, of forcing to get what he wants, Boaz is resting in God. He is doing what he needs to do and then trusting God to do what only God can do. Boaz has recognized since the beginning that this was a story that God was telling. And he's saying, I'm not going to get in the way of that. I'm not going to do, put what I want first. So the other redeemer says that he is willing to buy it, but Boaz has some more information to share. Verses five through eight. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I think Boaz is being very intentional in the way he shares the information. First, he highlights the easy part, the part that everyone's going to be like, yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a great deal. I'll do that. Hey, here's this land. And we need to understand when there's, we're talking about redemption, there was lots of ways to be a redeemer in the Old Testament. One of those was redeeming land. When a person that owned a piece of land was too poor, they had no money, they could go to a relative and say, would you buy this land from me so that I can have money to provide for myself? Maybe I can even work on your fields, but you can buy it. Here's the thing though. What would eventually happen to that land? It would come back to the family. The longest you could own the land of someone else was 49 years. Because then eventually you would reach the year of Jubilee and the land would go back to the original family. But what's the problem? What does the Redeemer know about Naomi? She has no family. This sounds like a great deal. If I buy this land now, it's going to be mine forever. It will forever be part of my family's inheritance. This is going to be part of what we possess. Yeah, I'll buy it. This is a great deal. But then Boaz says, wait a second. There's more to this story. There's a greater cost. One of the interesting observations we see in this book is that virtually everyone all the time, including the narrator, highlights where where Ruth is from. Ruth the Moabite. Even when we saw in, cha- um, in chapter 2, the, the young man who is in charge of, of at the field, and he says, Ruth, who has returned from Moab, the Moabite. Like, hey, you really need to know where she's from. Everyone has made a big deal about that except for Boaz. Boaz, even when he talked to her, he says, you who have returned from your native land. What stands out to Boaz is not Ruth's past. What stands out to Boaz is Ruth's current, present faithfulness. He sees her and what he says is, you have come to hide beneath the wings of the God of Israel. That's the part that stands out to him. You are a worthy woman. Until he gets to this part where then he does highlight. Also, Ruth the Moabite. 
I don't think that, that Boaz is, is necessarily being tricky and trying to do, do something and, and be sneaky and saying, well, let me force this because we know the character of Boaz. I think what Boaz is doing is he's looking out for Ruth and Naomi. He's making sure, do you understand the cost of what you are about to do? Are you truly willing to be the redeemer for Ruth, the Moabite? Because I know that is going to be the biggest concern for you. That's going to be the biggest drawback. But we already know it's not the drawback for, for Boaz. He has identified her not according to her past, but according to her present. And we see that the closer redeemer is not willing. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, gave it to another, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So that when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. What's changing for the, what's changed for the other redeemer? Why has he refused? Because he's unwilling to pay the cost of redemption. He's willing to redeem the land with all of the upside, but now it's not all upside. Because what's going to happen? If he redeems the land and pays for that land, but then has a child with Ruth, that child is considered a inheritance. He's a part of a Limelex line. So that's not even going to stay in his family. It's going to go back to Naomi. It's going to go back to that child. And he's saying, why would I pay for this, buy this land, then see after I own the land, it be given away to someone who's not even considered my son, someone who will not continue my name. Now, that cost is too high. What are we seeing between the contrast of Boaz and this other redeemer? Boaz is willing to give up what he wants in order to do what is right. The closer redeemer refuses to do what is right if it means giving up what he wants. One of the principles that we see within Ruth is a wonderful story of redemption. A wonderful story in which God produces a sweet harvest, but not everyone is able to participate and enjoy what God is doing. Think back all the way to where the book began. What was the, what, the first words of the book of Ruth? In the days the judges ruled. We talked about this a lot, but what was that important? How does Judges end? What does it say? Judges 21, verse 25, the very end. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And within the story of Ruth, we have examples of people who are doing that. Who's the first example? Elimelech. The irony of Elimelech is his name means my God is king. And we think, oh, okay, well, this is where we're at. The setting is that there's no king in Israel and everyone's doing what is right. But maybe the guy who's named my God is king, maybe he'll be different. Maybe he will do not what is right in his eyes, but will do what is right in God's eyes. 
And we see the judgment that God has put on the nation of Israel through this famine. The right response there would have been to repent. But instead, Elimelech runs away. And because Elimelech runs away and does not rest in the Lord, does not trust the Lord to do what only the Lord can do, he thinks, I will do this in my own strength. I will not rest in you. I will fix this on my own. He never sees the redemption and the reconciliation. He dies in Moab. Now we come to this other redeemer, the nameless redeemer. And what is he doing? How is he making his decisions? He's saying, look, I can't do that because it will get in the way of my inheritance, my name. He's doing things according to his own eyes. He's doing what is right for him to do. And do you know what the result is? Not only does he not get everything, he actually hinders his own inheritance and his own name. One of the fascinating elements of of this book that we miss in English is that there's an idiom right at the beginning, an expression that demonstrates the intentionality for not naming him. When it says, Boaz said, friend, come sit here, the idiom would be the equivalent of saying, hey, so-and-so, come sit here. It's intentional. You were so worried about your name, your inheritance, you missed out on being part of a greater name, a greater inheritance. Why? Because you did not rest in the Lord. You were not willing to do what was right, even if it meant giving up what you wanted. See, the story here is a masterpiece of redemption. God is developing a beautiful story of restoration and rescue, but not all will be recipients nor partakers of that blessing. It is the ones who choose to rest, to trust in God, who choose that, who will see the redemption that the Lord is providing. Thankfully, Boaz has placed his rest in the Redeemer. He has cause to rejoice. Look at verses 9 through 12. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. I have bought that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and all to, and to Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. What is causing Boaz to respond this way? Because from the very beginning, Boaz has been looking to see what God is doing. From the very start, he is sensitive to the hand of God to see what story, what painting, what masterpiece is the Lord producing. I want to participate in that. This is what he says all the way back in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognized the hand of the Lord. He saw that God was at work and Boaz rested in the knowledge that God's plan is perfect. 
He's willing to do the hard things because he has total confidence in what God will ultimately do. Now, I just need to pause here real quick and, and say, we're not saying that your story is guaranteed to have this type of happy ending. I'm not saying that, man, if you just rest in the Lord, he will give you all the money you want. He will give you all the health you want. He will give you all the happiness. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a deeper truth, a more sure foundation that looks beyond just our earthly circumstances, that look to our eternal reality. Boaz is resting in a God who is in control. The rest here is active. It's doing what he knows he's meant to do. It says this, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who, built, who, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What is happening here? Because of Boaz's faithfulness, because of Ruth's faithfulness, the people are rejoicing in God's work. They're seeing what God is doing. They're seeing that something they could not see before. Never underestimate how God can use your small acts of faithfulness to impact everyone around you. Never underestimate how God can use your small acts of faithfulness to impact everyone around you. All the people are seeing this. Do you think that they would have seen this before if Boaz hadn't been willing to do the hard thing? What if Boaz had just said, hey, listen, I'm pretty sure the other Redeemer is not going to want to marry you. We'll just do a private ceremony. We'll elope We'll take care of this. No one's really going to worry about it because you're a Moabite. Let's, let's just do this and, and I get what I want. You get what you want. It's all taken care of. No, he does the hard thing. And because he does the hard thing, what happens? More people rejoice. That's what we're called to do. When we recognize that what God is doing, we need to join in on that process. We come then to the work of the Lord, how God chooses to restore, to respond to the faithfulness of Ruth and Boaz. So Boaz took Ruth. This is the happy ending. And she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on the lap and became his nurse. And the woman, women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Restoration and redemption. The worthy bachelor has found a worthy wife. The restless widow has found rest in the house of her husband. 
The childless mother has been given a son. The bitter woman has received a sweeter blessing. This is the happy ending we've been waiting for. All of these reversals of their fortunes, all of these people that are restored, who are, are rejuvenated by what God is doing. It begins with Ruth. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. What was it that Naomi said way at the beginning when she said, you, you shouldn't come back with me. Don't come with me. May the Lord allow you to find rest in the house of your husband. Meaning, go back. Go back to Moab. Find a different husband. In her wildest imagination, Naomi could never imagine Ruth finding a redeemer. Ruth finding rest in the house of a husband in Israel. Who's going to marry a Moabite? And yet, what does God do in a way that Naomi could never imagine? God does exactly what she was hoping would, would happen, but in a far better way. We then see this redemption that happens for, for Naomi, but there's an interesting element. Who do they say is redeeming Naomi? Look at verse 14. And then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Well, who are they talking about? We might think, oh, they're talking about Boaz. Boaz is the redeemer that we've seen in the story, but it's not Boaz because of what it says next. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Ruth did not give birth to Boaz. Who did Ruth give birth to? Obed. The redeemer for Naomi is Obed. Why? Because the name, what she was concerned about is my name is going to be blotted out. There's no one to continue the name of my husband. There's no one who can nourish me in my old age. What did she say to her daughters-in-law when she was leaving? Should I have hope? Even if I had a husband tonight and would bear a son, are you going to wait? There's no hope for me. There's no picture in which I can imagine that my name being restored. There's no picture in which I am nourished in my old age. I'm going back to Israel to die. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. What did Naomi say when she came back, when she talked to the women the first time when she arrived in Israel? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I am bitter. Why? I left full and I have come back empty. And what have the women just told her? They have pointed to two ways she is not empty. What is the first way they tell her she's not empty? Ruth, your daughter-in-law who loves you is worth more to you than seven sons. 
The imagery there is if you had exactly what you wanted, you had the perfect number of sons, you have all of this, you have this hope, and and you had all of that, Ruth is better. You're not empty, Naomi. You have Ruth. But even more than that, we see this picture of Naomi sitting and her arms are no longer empty. She takes this baby and she holds this baby that is a restorer of life to her. But I want to ask a question. Are those the only redeemers that we are seeing here? Boaz and Obed. No, but the people see there's actually a greater redemption that's happening here. Look at what they keep on saying. Who is it that allowed Ruth to conceive and have a baby? Look back at verse 13. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Who was it that orchestrated the details that Ruth would happen to come to the field of a worthy man? Who made it work out so that when that worthy man came to the gate, it happened that the man he was looking for was there? Who was orchestrating those details? The Lord. The one who gives conception to Ruth, the Lord. The one who visited his people and gave them food so that Ruth and Naomi, who were far away here, the Lord has visited his people and given them food. Who was it? The Lord. And who is it that the women bless? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. How should the people, how are the people responding to what God is doing? They're rejoicing. They're overwhelmed by the beauty of the masterpiece that is being revealed to them. This is incredible. The Lord is the Redeemer. Rejoice in the Redeemer, for he restores those who rest in him. Ruth rested in the Lord. Not passively. She did what she needed to do and trusted God to do what only he could do. Boaz trusted in the Lord. He did what he needed to do, but he trusted God to do what only God could do. Eventually, Naomi does the same thing. Rejoice in the Redeemer, for he restores those who rest in him. And then we come to the end of our book, and there is a surprise ending. At the end here it says, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It goes on and it says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. What's the point of saying this? Like, we, we've been, we haven't been doing genealogies. We haven't been, it doesn't seem to be that kind of book. Why all of a sudden this, like, left field, it almost feels like, hey, you know what? Let's just add something to the end of the book. This doesn't even seem like it fits what's going on in the rest of the story. But here's what I want to propose to you. David is the exclamation mark that elevates the rest of the story. 
Because what we have seen in Ruth is the ripple effect that our actions have. What was the first ripple effect that we saw of faithlessness of Elimelech? Elimelech did not do what was right and therefore he put burdens on the people around him. The people around him were left destitute in a foreign land because he was not faithful. There was a ripple effect of bitter hardships. But what is the ripple effect of faithfulness? Sweet harvest. Ruth's faithfulness, Boaz's faithfulness, doesn't just redeem Ruth and Boaz. It redeems Naomi. Their faithfulness, though, doesn't just redeem them. It redeems their nation. How did we look at when we saw judges? There is no king in Israel. Now there's a king in Israel. But you all know that there is a far greater ripple effect. The far greater ripple effect of this story is that God chooses this story to be part of his story. Because who is the son of David? Who is the root of David, the worthy redeemer that we read of in Revelation 5? Worthy is he to open the scroll. Worthy is he for he is the root of David, the lion of Judah. What did we see earlier when it talked about Tamar? When it talked about that story of Tamar is the only other time that we see a kinsman redeemer in scripture. God chooses to be part of his story, his lineage, the lineage that the closer redeemer rejected. God chooses to use the parts that we might want to hide beneath the rug. He says, no, I want to highlight those. I want you to see that I am doing a work of redemption. There's an element in which we can think that our past hardships, our past mistakes are too great for God to make something beautiful. But this is what God is choosing to make part of his story. You might be thinking and saying, no, Stephen, you don't understand what's happened in my past. You don't understand the hardships, the bitterness that I've experienced, but you don't understand the power of our Redeemer what he can do to transform your story, what he can do to choose to say, that's what I want to be part of my story. There's a ripple effect of faithfulness because there is a greater redeemer. The masterpiece that we see in Ruth is just a snapshot that's pointing to a bigger story. The bigger story is that we have a worthy redeemer. The bigger story is that we have the bitterest of hardships, which is death. And that death is because we rebelled, we rejected, we refused the grace of our God and we said we will do what is right in our own eyes. So we were separated from a holy God. We were separated from a God who wanted to give us life. And there was no hope for us. 
We were trapped in kingdoms of darkness, but then he said, I will send a redeemer. Send a redeemer from a line of redeemers. And he will come and he will take your most bitter hardship. He will take that bitter cup and he will drink every single drop so that he can pour out on you the sweetest of all blessings, which is life in his name. Rather than thinking, I can't do this lest I impair my inheritance, he welcomes us and says, you are welcome co-heirs with me of my inheritance because I will redeem you. And he took our place. He paid our price. He died on the cross. And after three days, he rose again. So what is our response? We rest in him. We rest in him. We rest in him because he is the redeemer that restores those who rest in him. Some of you might be here and you have a bitter hardship in your story right now. You're looking at at the painting of your life and you're saying, there is nothing beautiful here. And I want to tell you right now, if you place your rest in the redeemer, he will make a masterpiece. But what we've already seen in this story, not everyone gets to see that restoration. It is those who say, God, I will respond by placing my faith in you. I will repent. I will rest in you for my salvation. You are the only one who can do this. I can't save myself. I will do what I need to do, which is to place my faith in you, but I will trust you to do what only you can do, which is to redeem and save my soul. And when we do that, when we rest in him, he restores life to us. He is the redeemer. So what do we do? We rejoice. Many of you, though, have already made that decision. But I would just challenge you that right now, there are still times where we lose sight of the masterpiece that's before us. We look and we say, no, I know he's made masterpieces before, but there is no way he can redeem this. We're doing what's right in our own eyes. We're not resting in him. Do what you need to do. But then trust him to do what only he can do. I'm not saying that you're going to have the perfect ending like Ruth and, and, and Boaz. And quite frankly, they didn't even know that they had the perfect ending. They didn't know that this was leading to David. They didn't know that this was leading to Christ. But they knew that they had to be faithful. And then we rejoice. We rejoice in what God is doing. Those final strokes of a a masterpiece, often it won't come together until the very end. And I, I recognize that for many of you, many of your stories, there are elements where you're like, I have not yet seen those final brush strokes. That's okay. Use the finished masterpieces as an encouragement. Use those stories to say, wait a second, but I know the character of my good and holy God. Rejoice in the Redeemer, for he restores those who rest in him. There is a happy ending after all.